To get us started today, I want to um, remind you and me of a time, I want to talk about a time um, where I was getting my pilot's license. I don't know if you know this, but I actually am a pilot. I don't know if I can say that with real integrity because I haven't flown for over a decade. But, um, <clears throat> but on paper, I actually am still a pilot. It's really funny. All I need to do is get a little medical check, and in a plane, I can go. I just can't bring it in with me, and I can't, uh, I can't be for hire because um, that would be dangerous and scary. So, <clears throat> but um, in the course of getting the first license, it's called a private pilot license, and you have to just have flown for 40 hours and done a few other things. One of the things you need to do is you need to take what they call a cross-country and don't think of like Boston, LA, but it just needs to be about 300 nautical miles and it has to be a triangle. You need to touch down in two airports and make your way home. And so for me, I learned in Norwood. And Norwood is south of here and about the same size as Beverly Airport. Really, really similar. And um, for my cross country, my job is to go from Norwood, Mass, to uh, Albany, New York. Albany, New York, down to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and then Bridgeport back up to Norwood. And that was a triangle. And before I left, my flight instructor gave me a stern warning. And that warning was, as you fly from Norwood to uh, Albany, you're going to pass over the Berkshires, the mountains, part of the Appalachians in Western Mass. There we go. We've got a few Western Mass folks here. You love those mountains. And he said to me, what you don't want to do as you go over these mountains is you don't want to get trapped up on top of a cloud deck. Because, mind you, I'm just getting the private license. In other words, I'm not yet certified to fly in instrument conditions. I'm not yet certified to fly when I can't see, um, when I don't have visual reference to the ground. I'm not allowed to fly through clouds. He said, if you get yourself, as you're going over the Berkshires, trapped on top of a cloud deck, the danger is that you won't be able to come down. And it's very true. It's very um, amazing how disoriented the body gets. I knew from experience that if I was in a situation where the, the airplane was flying straight and level, but I had no reference to the ground because of clouds, I always feel like I'm falling left. So it was really disciplined just to make sure that I keep the airplane straight and level. So I knew that he, what he was saying was an important warning. I needed to make sure that I didn't get myself caught on top of a cloud deck because then I wouldn't be able to come down. And so sure enough, sure enough, as I was heading west, the scene that I saw was not unlike what you see up there which is you got the rising Berkshires coming up and clouds starting to form. And so I had to decide, was I going to risk going on top of them, hoping that there would be openings that I could get through to get down to Albany, or do I kind of take the other risk, which is uh, <laughs> staying clear of the mountains but still under the clouds. And you know, things are dynamic with weather, as you know. But my point is this. I am so glad that my instructor warned me about not getting trapped in front of a, on, on top of the the deck, because as the situation unfolded, I actually, I actually circled up to about um, 10,000 feet. It's about the ceiling of the Cessna 152. It's about as high as that thing could go. And I saw, could I, could I make it? Could I try to get on top of this cloud deck? And I couldn't. So instead, I had to go back down and just kind of make sure that I had my chart and I made sure that, okay, am I going to slam to a mountain? I don't think so. I think I'll be okay. <clears throat> a little nervous there for a little bit. But again, my point is this. My instructor warned me, don't get on top of a cloud deck because you might not be able to get down. And I'm so glad he did. And there's a part of me that I wondered for him if it was hard to give that warning because he could have freaked me out because I was already a little bit freaked out about doing this cross country, this longest flight that I'd ever done. And it would just be, you know, it was, it was stretching me in all sorts of different ways. But he didn't shy away from warning me. He said, just don't get on top of the cloud deck. And I'm so glad he warned me. 
because I would have found myself trapped had I not heeded his warning. <clears throat> the other day, Kelsey and I were in the parking lot at the Coming Center, where we have our church office. And um, JD, as he often does, escaped our grasp. And we yelled, JD! Put him in tears, but it stopped him in his tracks. Because if we didn't warn him, as we were leaving the Coming Center, he could have been a JD pancake out in the parking lot. And that would have been bad. And so I'm so glad I warned him. I'm so glad. So, my question for us today is, are you glad? Have you ever received a warning about which you are glad to have received? Are you glad to have given a warning for someone who needed it? Think about that for a second. Have you ever received a warning that though it might have been unpleasant or difficult at the time, saved you, rescued you, changed the course of your life? Have you ever given a warning and you're so glad you did? Because it helps someone. Well, as we're going through this transformation series and we're wrapping it up today, remember where we've come from. And where we've come from is that, hey, we were meant to be transformed, right? If we're not experiencing inside a real change in our hearts, if we're not experiencing Jesus changing us from the bruised reed, from the wick that's about to get snuffed out, and to someone who's going into all the purposes of God, if we're not experiencing that change, then we're missing something of the gospel. And so we start out saying, here's how we get ourselves transformed. We get ourselves transformed by meeting with Jesus regularly, right? Consistent FaceTime equals total transformation time. We talked about discipleship, about how another great way to get transformed is to have someone investing in you and you investing in others, just the way the kingdom is meant to work. And then we talked about having a team, that transformation, in fact, takes a team. And he said, hey, you want to be involved in a faith group, because that's another way you get transformed is by walking not in isolation, as most, most of us Western Christians do, but walking with a team. And then we started to Say, okay, this is what it looks like when you get transformed. When you get launched to his purposes, we say, well, transformation begins with a serve, right? You start serving others. That's kind of the fruit of this transformed life. And then John brought us the word about the nations, the people groups, the ethne, that um, a, a way that we're transformed is we start to have a holy concern for the fact that God at the end of time is going to have before his throne people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it's, it behooves us to be concerned. And then we end today with this last piece about transformation, and we end with a warning from Jesus. And just as I was so glad that my instructor warned me before I left and flew to the Berkshires about getting stuck on a cloud deck, just as I'm so glad that Kelsey and I warned JD before he got himself into that parking lot, I am so glad that Jesus has left for us a holy warning that the people of God need to take to heart. Will you look at that warning with me? I'll tell you where it is in a second, but first I want to give you the context, okay? A little background here. The context is Jesus and his buddies are in Jerusalem, and uh, the guys that Jesus has been walking with are kind of country bumpkins, and so they get to the city, Jerusalem, and they are just loving it. Look at how big these buildings are. Just imagine yourself at Times Square in Manhattan, right? And then just imagine, you know, one of your buddies just kind of gives a downer and says, yeah, okay, all these lights are cool and, you know, the intersection's cool, but just so you know, you know, in a little while, not one of these buildings is going to be left intact, you know? 
Probably wouldn't bring that buddy to Manhattan anymore. It's kind of a downer. But that, 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 that person was Jesus on that day. He says to the guys, hey guys, just, okay, Jerusalem's cool, but just so you know, this city will be destroyed. And that kind of provokes a question. And then the disciples start to ask, hey Jesus, can you tell us about when this is going to happen? When will things fall apart for Jerusalem? When will the end of time come? Tell us about the end of days. And Jesus begins to give several warnings. Again, warnings that it behooves you and I to take heart, take to heart. He warns and he gives some parables. He gives a a parable about ten virgins. Kind of the the bottom line is, hey, just be ready for God. You know, don't don't be lazy, don't be wicked. And he gives a, a story about the talents, one, five, and ten talents, kind of saying, hey, before he comes, you know, be be uh, faithful with what God's given you. And then he gives this description. And it's not a parable, it is a description. It happens to contain a simile, that is a comparison, but it is a description of how things will go. Turn with me to Matthew 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. Remember, our heart attitude is, Lord, transform us. Actually, I'm going to pray that for us today. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that it's not us who judge the word, but the word that judges us. And so, Lord, we just take that posture even now, uh, that, Lord, it is to us to obey and to receive. And, um, Lord, we ask by your grace, um, you, Holy Spirit, are the great counselor, you're the comforter, and so we need you, Holy Spirit, as we read the word of God, we need you to quicken it to our hearts. And just as there are about 200 responses and thoughts and sets of uh, things going on in, in all the hearts in this room. We pray, Holy Spirit, have your way with each one. We trust you. And I pray, Lord, what is of you, let it come forth. What is not of you, let it, let it fall to the wayside. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, remember, Jesus is explaining. This is what's happening at the end. It says here, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations, right? The very thing that John shared with us last week. All the people groups of the earth will be gathered before him. And he, the Son of Man, Jesus, will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, yes and amen. He says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, 
and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They will also, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I'm so glad that Jesus gives us a warning. I am so glad. Now let's start with what this is, and we don't have to get too hung up on what it isn't. And what I mean is it's not a whole treatise on hell. But what it is, it's a great warning for us as God's people as far as what is to come. And when Jesus starts to share about sheeps and goats, that's going to be something that really rings true with these guys. Because, you know, sheeps and, sheep and goats, they, in the day, they are in the fields together. But at night, sheep prefer the open air. And goats prefer shelter. So very regular routine for the shepherd to separate sheep and goats in the evening. Just as at the end of time, Jesus will separate sheep from goats, from among the nations. And just to be clear, it's not him separating, hey, here's the U.S. and here's France. You know, this is righteous, it's not. But from among the people groups, God will then separate from each people group, sheep and goats. I love the clue that we do get a little bit about heaven and hell here. Let's look at verse 34. I think there's something in the heart of God that comes through and we do a little comparison here. Look at verse 34. It says, The king will say to those on his right, and that's just a place of favor, kind of in that culture, right side would be the preferential side. The king will say to these sheep on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And the thing I want to highlight there is that from the beginning, it was God's desire that people inherit the kingdom of God. From the beginning, the desire was that people walk into all of God's purposes. That was from the beginning. Heaven and the kingdom are from the beginning. Now, contrast that with what we get in verse 41 when we hear about eternal fire. Listen to this. Then he will say to those on his left, goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, excuse me, prepared for whom? For the devil and his angels. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this is what I take away. I take away that God from creation meant for all to enjoy his kingdom. But something came along, a rebellion. The rebellion that we have hints about in scripture from the devil. Because of his pride, he wanted to be like God, but was not God. And so, being unrepentant, God had no choice but to create a place for him. And this place is the eternal fire. And as we see, it's a place for the devil and the people that follow him and then those that don't seem to respond to the grace that God has given in Jesus Christ. But again, the thing I just wanted to highlight is, from the beginning was that we should all enjoy the kingdom. But it's only after the fall of the devil that God was forced to create a hell. 
And perhaps as I step back from this passage, the thing that I love the most about this is this. And this is where, just let's step back a little bit. What I love the most is, here we have Jesus. Perhaps, no, not perhaps, absolutely the most compassionate, the most tender, the most loving man to have ever walked the earth. And the same man who loves, who heals, who delivers, and who frees is the man who has a word for us about hell. And here we are in 21st century earth, and I find that people kind of in the Christian world, they kind of fall into two camps on this issue. You've got on the one hand, kind of hellfire and damnation, very accurate scripturally, you know, the pride and the fact that we have biblical knowledge and it's correct. And on the other hand, you've got kind of more people who are really good at social justice, but do want to downplay the whole hell thing. Hey, that's a little embarrassing, you know, can't really talk about that piece, but we just got to love people, serve them. Help, you know? What good is it to tell someone who's starving in Africa about hell when what they need is a piece of bread to eat? But here's Jesus Christ, and we got them both. Amen? The man of God, the most tender, loving man to ever walk the earth, has also got a word about the justice of God on his lips. And I just love that. Because it defies all of our, our human stuff, right? It defies all of our this, the right and left, and this and that. It defies it all. We've got Jesus, who the same man who spent time with sinners, the same man who got rebuked by the religious crowd for being with the sinners, is the same guy who has a sharp word about where sin will end up, where the consequences of sin will bring someone if they do not repent. So what does Jesus say about hell? This most compassionate, most tender, most wonderful man, what does he tell us? Well, we have what we have here. He says that there is an eternal fire. He says that there's an eternal punishment. Earlier in Matthew, he talks about the one that we should fear is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We should fear God, not man. In Luke 16, he tells a pretty lengthy story about a man named Lazarus. Not Lazarus who was raised from the dead, but Lazarus who in life was really wealthy and didn't help other people, didn't seem to have a whole lot of compassion on those who weren't in his socioeconomic state. And we have him, a very clear picture of an eternal conscious suffering. He's from hell asking, oh God, if, if you'll just go back and share with my family the reality here of heaven and hell, Please send someone to do that. We've got Jesus, the one who died on the cross for you and me in Mark 9, saying that hell is a place where the fire doesn't go out. Actually, he quotes from Isaiah 66. And he says, hell is a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. It's Jesus, meek and mild. You know, I'll just, at my grandma's church, I love it. It's a wonderful church there. So last weekend, you know, the classic, I don't know, it's just the picture that every church has of Jesus, you know, brown hair, whatever, just meek and mild. Come on, Jesus also giving the word about heaven and hell, being so clear. A few other places in the New Testament, right? Hebrews 9 says it's appointed once for man to die and then face judgment. And then, of course, the most vivid picture we have is from Revelation 20. Let me read that to you. 
the, the friend of Jesus, John, got this picture from heaven after Jesus has died and gone to heaven and he has this real visitation from God. He writes it down and near the end of this visitation, here's what he writes. He says, this is what he saw. He saw death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm so glad that Jesus warns us. I am so glad that he warns us. Now, what I can't parse for you is probably the questions that you're asking right now. You know, I can't parse. What about those who don't get a chance to hear? Or what about those that don't have a chance to adequately hear, you know? And of course, in my mind, all of my relatives and family members and coworkers, not at the harbor, but other coworkers in the past go through my mind about, Lord, what about their eternal state? And yes, it can kind of, I can kind of um, gravitate to Romans 1 and 2. You know, Romans 2 has a good picture where Paul just says, hey, you know, um, uh, the Gentiles, or the, you know, the non-Jews who live and they have kind of the law in their hearts, you know, there's something in their conscience, a light or a law, they're a judge unto themselves, you know, and that God's going to take care of it. <clears throat> but you know what I can say for us today when it comes to that question? I say I can't really spend a whole lot of time on that one. I think of that Romans 2 passage, but I think more of Romans 10. You know what Romans 10 says? It says that everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what it says? It says, but how can they hear or how can they be saved? How can they call on someone they haven't believed in? And then it says, how can they believe in someone if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? So in other words, instead of wringing my hands about an important issue, I'm not saying it's not a valid question, although often I will say when I'm in conversation with someone about the gospel, and they say, well, what about you know, that tribe in Africa that hasn't heard yet? Oftentimes, it's a smokescreen, in my opinion, because I'm usually, we're, I'm dealing with them right now. I'm talking to you. What about you in heaven and hell? What about Jesus? What about you? And they kind of throw out a smokescreen, although it is, of course, a valid concern. But as I say, instead of hand-wringing over, ah, what about this? I just go to Romans 10. I say, you know what? My job is to send and preach and, and speak and share with the ones that God does give me. Let's put, that, let's put that picture of Phil up there. Here's an example. You guys know we sent Phil out just a couple of weeks ago. A couple of weeks ago. Now we got a picture just from a few days ago. That's his teammate on the left, and then right in the middle is a guy that for the sake of this conversation we'll call Moo. Okay? And there's Moo, and you see a little thing behind him. You know what that little sheet is behind him? That little book? That's the Gospel of John in Arabic. Because Phil got a revelation of this. Phil got an understanding that there's a warning going out. That Jesus said the end of time is going to separate sheep and goats. And Phil's taking it seriously. Just like you and I, we need to take it seriously. Brian and John and I, just on Thursday, gosh, we need to do this more. We were just at the North Shore Mall. We said, okay, God, let's, let's hear from God and let's try to share with some people. So we just waited on the Lord and Said, God, try to you know, show us pictures of someone we could talk to here in the mall. And we just got different, different little clues. We felt like God spoke into our hearts. And we went our three various ways. And, you know, John got to talk to a lady at a kiosk. And I got to talk to 
a guy at one of the kiosks, his name is Josh, I got to pray for him, and Brian got to ask someone if they needed healing in their leg, and the answer is no. <laughs> My point is, and you know, so hey, nothing radical happened that day. Sorry, your staff and your leaders weren't super anointed on Thursday. But there's something, on, there's something going on there, saying, hey, I know that God's calling people to himself, and I want to be a part of it. You know, or maybe, um, you know, there is a respectable, um, let me say this, there are respectable believers who kind of have the, um, the annihilism view, it's kind of what folks call it. And with that reading of Revelation, you know, there's that possibility, what if at the second death there is no more eternal conscious suffering, you know? Well, it's possible. You know, I haven't gotten there yet. I don't know. And that's something that you need to wrestle with. I'm not going to answer that for you. But I will say this. I'm reading a great book called The Art of Pastoring. And uh, it kind of sounds like, you know, a dummy's guide for pastors. But um, it's actually a really tender, wonderful book written by a guy named David Hansen. He was a pastor in um, rural Montana. And he just really shares about, hey, here's pastoring, kind of uncensored, reality of it all. And he says for a season of his life, he kind of went through, I guess I would call more of a universalist phase. And that kind of the idea that is popular today, probably among those same people who are really good at social justice, but not so good at all the truth of the gospel. And that is, hey, at the end, everything's going to work out. God's so good. You know, his mercy's so real. It's got to work out for everybody at the end. Everything's going to be okay. But he realized that as he adopted that view, that of course was totally contrary to the very words of Jesus. That was actually the number one thing for him. He said, I just, as soon as he started to go that way, he realized that his preaching was empty and that the cross made no sense. You know, why the cross of Jesus if there's not the justice of God on its way coming to get you and me unless we have a Savior? And he came to the realization that the one who speaks the most about Eternal punishment was Jesus Christ himself, the same one who calls us to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, serve the poor, visit the sick, love on prisoners. So as I say, I am not able to answer all your questions about hell, but what I can say is scripture does give us a great warning. And my response is obedience, And my response is, Lord, have mercy. And our response should be, God, have mercy. Everyone say tears. 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 This is what I want to say. I want to say transformation terminates with tears. Everyone say that with me. Transformation terminates with tears. What I mean is, as we get transformed, one of the things that happens is we should weep over the fact that heaven and hell are real, And so we've got a message to proclaim to the earth today with sobriety. You know, I grew up listening to ACDC. I'm on a highway to hell. (laughs) And now, honestly, just this week in preparation for this this message, I looked at that that video and I was just all turned up on the, you know, inside out on my insides. Huge crowd, you know. A lot of people have their little devil horns on. The lead guitarist has his devil horn. Ah, wait. And I just thought, oh God, if we are joking about the reality of an eternal punishment, God have mercy. And Lord have mercy on them because they just don't know. They don't know what they're singing. 
Let me read a little excerpt here from an Anglican bishop about 100 years ago. His name is J.D. Ryle. Love his first name, his first initials, obvious reasons. But when this whole kind of idea started to circle theologically, like, hey, maybe in the end it's all going to work out, he said this. He said, a flood of false doctrine has lately broken in upon us. Men are beginning to tell us that God is too merciful to punish souls forever, that all mankind, however wicked and ungodly, will sooner or later be saved. We are to embrace what is called a kinder theology and treat hell as a pagan fable. This question lies at the very foundation of the whole gospel. The moral attributes of God, his justice, his holiness, his purity are all involved in it. The scripture has spoken plainly and fully on the subject of hell. If words mean anything, there is such a place as hell. If texts are to be interpreted fairly, there are those who will be cast into it. The same Bible which teaches that God in mercy and compassion sent Christ to die for sinners does also teach that God hates sin and must from his very nature punish all who cleave to sin or refuse the salvation he has provided. God knows that I never speak of hell without pain and sorrow. God knows that I never speak of hell without pain and sorrow. I would gladly offer the salvation of the gospel to the very chief of sinners. I would willingly say to the vilest and most profligate of mankind on his deathbed, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. But God forbid that I should ever keep back from mortal man that scripture reveals a hell as well as heaven, that men may be lost as well as saved. Transformation terminates with tears. I'm so glad that my flight instructor warned me. I'm so glad that Jesus warns us. And I think there are many people out there who would be glad if we also warn them of God's justice to come unless we take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. What Psalm 2 says, Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry, but blessed are those who take refuge in him. And, you know, if we get confused, like, does Jesus, you know, Jesus just has an anger problem? You know, it says his anger can flare up in a moment. I don't think Jesus has an anger problem. He has a justice issue with sin and that he's serious about. So, transformation terminates with tears. Let it add an urgency. Let it add an urgency to us, you know? And, um, you know, I'm reminded of um, a few weeks ago, I went to a Red Sox game. Talk about hell. There's Red Sox. Just kidding. All right, so... <clears throat> Sorry, probably not appropriate. <laughs> Went to a Red Sox game, and of course I saw my friend Mike. And if you've gone to any Boston sporting event, you've probably seen him too. He's outside of Bruins games. He's outside of Celtics games. He's outside of Red Sox games. I don't know if he goes to Patriots games and gets down that far. I haven't seen him just been to one game my whole life. But he's the guy who's got a cross, you know, he's, he's a got a um, little placard, like a little poster he's holding with all the flames on it. He's handing out tracts, and they're all about hell. And, you know, I, you know, over years, going to Bruins games, Red Sox games, I'd see him, and I'd really be bothered by him. And so I kind of would process that with the Lord. and be like, why, why does that guy bother me so much? And I would have liked to have said, well, he bothers me just because it's the wrong message. You know, it's not right, or it's not the right flavor, or whatever. But that's not what was going on inside of me. What was going on inside of me when I'd see this guy is the conviction of God would be on me. Because I'd say, no matter what I think of how he's doing what he's doing, at least he's doing a better job than I am. He's more sincere and he's more burdened by the reality of heaven and hell than I am. And that's what I had to process with God. So finally I said hi to him. I said, Mike. I didn't say that because I didn't know his name at that point. I said, hey, 
said, I think we were in the Park Street Tea Station. He, he goes down to Park Street sometimes. In the Park Street Tea, I said, hey, thanks for what you're doing. I said, I might not, you know, I don't remember what I said. I said, like, I might not understand it all, I really agree with it all, but you're, the fact is, you're doing more than I am right now to, um, to, to warn people of what's coming. And so we had a little moment of prayer, and he's just the tenderest, most sweet guy in the world. He's not like some of the guys that, for example, I see Jonathan out there, and we were praying as pastors this, this last Tuesday for Salem and the Salem outreaches. Because there are some guys that come to Salem who really do preach hellfire and damnation. I'm not sure that the spirit is correct. You know, God's the judge. But I'm not always sure that the spirit behind them is really kind of representing the character of God. But anyways, this guy, whose name is Mike, he's just a tender man. And he has a real burden for souls. And that's why he does what he does. That's why he does what he does. I said, oh, Lord, give me some of that urgency. This is how he's spending his life, warning people about what's to come. Give me that urgency, Lord. It might come out in a different flavor. I don't think I'm called to have a flaming poster board around my neck. But God, there's something to be said about that. So, Lord, change me. We need to urgently pray. Okay, there should be an urgency in our prayer. So when we put up things like France... Up there, we need to pray for these nations, these people groups, that God will call out all that He has for them. There should be an urgency in our sharing. You know, it was not comfortable when a month before my grandfather passed away, I shared the gospel with him just from a simple gospel tract. But I had an urgency because I had a real revelation of this that I want to be walking in again. When John and Brian and I showed up at the North Shore food court, when I walked in first, I did just Excuse me, I did think, oh God, of the hundred people that are in this food court right now, I wonder who is going to heaven. I wonder who isn't. I wonder what you feel about their lives. I got clued into that a little bit. We need an urgency. And we need an urgency to love. Right? Remember the whole thing that Jesus gave. Jesus wasn't giving a works doctrine. We're not going to earn salvation by giving to the poor. But these are just the fruit. You know, those of us who know Jesus, the fruit is going to be that we love the poor. We feed the hungry. That's just going to be the fruit of our lives. That's what it should look like. Amen? God, give us that urgency. Why don't you guys stand? Worship band, come on up. Transformation terminates with tears. I'm so glad that we are warned. I'm so glad. Thank you, Jesus, for warning us. Thank you. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm just going to ask you to let the Holy Spirit start to call to mind even now your family members, your co-workers, your neighbors who don't know the Lord. And, you know, I could yell at you for a little bit and, you know, try to rile you up maybe in the flesh to get burdened for them, but it's just a lot more effective if we ask the Holy Spirit to do that. Amen? So let's do that now. Holy Spirit, we love you. Thank you. Thank you that the man who healed and delivered and saved and believed and was patient with others and still is to this day is the same man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the glorious Jesus Christ who warned us about heaven and hell. Lord, first we just surrender our questions to you. Lord, every question about how this works out, how this plays out in the end, thank you you don't. You don't despise our questioning. You don't despise our reasoning. Lord, at the same time, we just lay it before you and say, Lord, have your way with our reasoning.
Holy Spirit, we just ask, bring to mind the family members. Bring to mind the co-workers. Bring to mind the neighbors that face a Christless eternity. Unless they meet you. We're just going to pause there. I'm going to ask you just right now. Why don't you just turn in twos and threes as we did beginning the service and just pray for by name your family member. Pray for by name your coworkers. Just let's start praying for them by name. Let it be a, a wonderful incense going up to the Lord's throne today of praying for those who don't know him. Let's do that. Just turn in twos and threes. Start to pray out loud for your neighbors, your friends. So Lord, we're asking in Jesus' name, by name, for our family members, for our co-workers, for our neighbors, our friends, God. For those in other nations, God, Lord, your word says in 2 Corinthians that there's a veil that keeps them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of the Lord Jesus. God, we, in the name of Jesus, we, we tear that veil. We render that veil asunder in the name of Jesus. We pray that, God, as you have with us, God, you would uh, use every resource at your disposal, including us, to make known to them how long and how wide, how deep and high the love of Jesus Christ is for them, a love that nailed Jesus to the cross. God, let there be a conviction of sin, God, we pray. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit, please work in these folks' lives and let there be conviction of guilt in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment, is what it says in John. And God, just come, bring conviction and then grace. Let them find you at the table of mercy, at the throne of mercy, we pray. We just believe, God. Help our unbelief. Thank you, Lord.